This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We are the ones to take control. Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of You Create Your World by Mitchell Maddock. This Strongsville singer-songwriter is our featured Ohio music artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Okay, we know Mary Jane Van Gilder isn't alive. She was born in 1911 and disappeared in 1945 as World War II came to a close. Even if this mother of five voluntarily walked away from the life and family she knew, She'd be 109 years old today. But the passing of years has not lessened her family's need to know. From her oldest daughter, Anna Mae, who is approaching 90 years old herself, to Mary Jane's grandchildren, there has been a renewed effort to solve a mystery that is now 75 years old. This tale even features an intrepid police officer who has taken up her cause even getting bodies exhumed in the hopes of resolving this mystery. So what happened to Mary Jane Van Gilder? We don't know the end of this story, but we do know the beginning. She was born in Montana, West Virginia in 1911 to John and Anna Croft, the fourth of eight siblings. And in 1929, at the age of 17 and just a few weeks before the Great Depression hit, She married James Wesley Van Gilder and began her own family. By the time World War II broke out in 1941, Mary Jane had five living children, Barbara, Anna Mae, Cheryl, Louise, and Jimmy. She had also given birth to stillborn twins in 1935, a girl and a boy she named Alice and Alan. But it was a troubled marriage. Mary Jane would allege her husband was an alcoholic and abusive, and she began an affair with a man who worked on the family farm. The affair produced a child, the little girl they called Cheryl, and James Van Gilder knew the child was not his. Still, they remained together on the farm for another two years, 
until one day Mary Jane moved out, leaving her children behind. She went to the nearest town, the Marion County seat of Fairmont, and rented an apartment above the old Fairmont Theater. She found work there. Her eldest daughter, Anna Mae Rager, the one who's almost 90 now, told a reporter last year she didn't know what her mother did in Fairmont or what precipitated her leaving that day. Her dad didn't talk about it. And as kids, they just accepted that their mother was living somewhere else now. Anna May said her dad took a job with the Works Progress Administration, an agency President Franklin Roosevelt created to help provide jobs during the Great Depression. And at some point, she recalled that her mother tried to reunite the family and suggested they move in with her in Fairmont. But James declined. Then, in March of 1944, Mary Jane's family was shocked to get a letter from her with an Ohio postmark. She wasn't in Fairmont anymore. Mary Jane had moved to Plymouth, Ohio, up in Huron County, a good four and a half hour drive by today's standard. Mary Jane found work at the Wilkins Army Air Force Depot in nearby Shelby, Ohio. That's in Richland County. On the map, Shelby is about halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. The depot was set up to produce munitions and make plane parts to help the war effort. And Mary Jane joined a force that is often collectively called Rosie the Riveter, women who took the typically male jobs in the factories while the men were fighting overseas. Mary Jane became a forklift operator. At some point during her employment, She was struck by an airplane propeller, which left scars on her shoulder. Mary Jane stayed in touch with her daughter, Anna Mae, throughout this. Anna Mae was 13 at the time. She sent her letters and clothes. She also sent her some war bonds that she had purchased. War bonds were ways for people to invest in the military and help fund the Allies in their fight against Germany and Japan. But then... In early 1945, Mary Jane wrote Anna Mae and asked to have those war bonds sent back to her. Anna Mae did. In February of 45, Mary Jane filed for divorce from her husband, accusing him of extreme cruelty and gross neglect of duty, which actually is a pretty common phrase used in divorce proceedings. Anna Mae wondered if her mom was wanting to get married again. She wrote her mother with questions, but she never got an answer. Letters she sent to her mom that spring and summer came back marked, return to sender, an indication her mom had moved and left no forwarding address. Nobody heard from Mary Jane Van Gilder again. She was 34 years old. A few months after Mary Jane filed for divorce in Ohio, James Van Gilder filed himself in Marion County, West Virginia. Mary Jane never responded to the filing, and James was granted his divorce as well as custody of the five children in November of 1945. There is a family story, very short on detail, that after the war ended, Mary Jane's brother, Lester Croft, returned from his service in the Navy, and that he and James Van Gilder went to Ohio to find Mary Jane, and that they did indeed find and communicate with her. But Anna Mae couldn't recall when that was or the outcome of that visit. 
There is one final court record that indicates Mary Jane may have still been around the Shelby area five months after the divorce was finalized in West Virginia, because that's when her own divorce filing in Ohio was withdrawn. According to the court record, it was done so at the plaintiff's request. And so the date on that court record, the last evidence that Mary Jane was alive, became her official date as a missing person. It was April 4, 1946. After World War II ended, Anna Mae grew up, got married, and started having children of her own. And in 1949, she began searching for her mom in earnest. Lester Croft also very much wanted to know where his sister had gone. So they enlisted the help of the Marion County Sheriff. In December of 1949, Marion County Sheriff James Kane, and again, this is the Marion County in West Virginia. He wrote the police chief in Plymouth asking if he'd reach out to the last place Mary Jane was known to have worked, as well as any other aircraft plants in the Plymouth area. Kane described Mary Jane as being 37 at that time, weighing 165 pounds and 5 feet 5 inches tall. She had been known to have shoulder length dark hair and freckles across the bridge of her nose. We don't know if Plymouth police ever wrote him back. The collection of documents Anna Mae saved during her search does not include a response from them. But two years after that, in May of 1952, Anna Mae finally heard from the Army Depot where her mother had worked. They wrote, Mrs. Van Gilder left our employ on 8 March 1945 due to, and this in quotes, additional household duties. Her address at the time of her resignation was 2 Trucks Street, Plymouth, Ohio. Prior to her residence at the above address, she resided at 311 Woodland Avenue, Willard, Ohio. Now, Mary Jane's job at the depot was likely coming to an end anyway. The war was ending and the depot let employees know cutbacks were coming. But was she leaving early for another reason? She resigned in March of 1945, the same time she was filing divorce, the same time she was asking for the war bonds to be sent back to her. And the address she was at when she resigned was different than the address she gave when she was hired just a little more than a year earlier. Why was she moving? And then there was that typewritten explanation of her resignation, household duties. What did that mean? Marriage? Or was she planning to return to West Virginia to be near her children? More questions than answers, and all suggesting that at some level, Mary Jane was planning a new phase of life, one that might have ended with a new last name. This would have made her much harder to follow. Anna Mae wrote the FBI, addressing its director, J. Edgar Hoover. But Hoover wrote back saying it wasn't an FBI case, that she needed to rely on local law enforcement. So Anna Mae wrote the Social Security Administration, trying to get a number to help track her mom. She wrote the U.S. Treasury Department. They confirmed the war bonds were cashed in a bank in Plymouth but they had no other information. She even wrote the Ohio State Highway Patrol, which did a brief investigation 
and found somebody who recalled seeing Mary Jane back in 1945, but came up with nothing to explain her whereabouts after April of 46. Now, James Van Gilder eventually remarried. He died in 1985. The house he shared with Mary Jane burned down not long afterwards. And as Mary Jane's grandchildren grew up, they joined their Aunt Anna Mae in wanting to know what happened. And then in 2004, their efforts actually netted a story they didn't have before. The Plymouth Journal in Ohio wrote a story about the family search, and they heard from a man named William H. King, who lived in Willard. King said his father and two brothers also worked at the Army Air Force Depot in the 40s. And while he was only 13 years old at the time, Mary Jane was a friend of his family's. He talked about her long, dark hair and how she was such a cheerful person. Because she didn't drive, his family often gave her a ride to work. He also recalled a very bad snowstorm in the winter of 1944 when the roads were impassable. A whole line of cars got stuck two miles from Plymouth, and the motorists had no choice but to abandon their vehicles and walk to town. William recalled the story of how his dad was walking with Mary Jane, and she was so cold she kept wanting to sit down. He and others had to keep encouraging her to stay on her feet and keep walking until they all got to town safely. It was nice for the family to get another story about their mother and grandmother, but King had no answer to the question of what happened next. In 2018, Mary Jane's granddaughter, Mindy Wilson, contacted Shelby Police Chief Lance Combs to try and stimulate some interest there since that was the town where Mary Jane worked. Now, you might imagine a million reasons why Chief Comb would show a little disinterest in a 73-year-old case that might not have even happened in his town and might have simply been a case of a woman starting a new life. But that's not what happened. Combs took the case and turned it over to Officer Adam Turner, who started spending hours every week looking for Mary Jane Van Gilder. Earlier this year, Officer Turner told the Register Herald in Beckley, West Virginia, that pain, that desperation, and that need to know is still very fresh for Anna. The not knowing is worse than the knowing. When somebody's missing, you're left in limbo. Turner explained that his empathy came from growing up above his family's funeral home and hearing stories of grief and loss daily. And so he takes his job seriously. He's written dozens of letters to coroner's offices, police departments, newspapers, and libraries. Officer Turner said he struck out finding Mary Jane's social security number or any record of death under her name. That and the fact that she was still staying in touch with her children when she abruptly stopped, suggests to him that she might have been the victim of foul play. It's hard to imagine her living a full life and not ever being tempted to reach out to them. So Officer Turner went to the National Missing and Unidentified Person System database. They call that NamUs for short. And they seek to link unidentified remains to reports of missing people. Could Mary Jane be one of the thousands of Jane Doe's across the country? 
He sifted through the database, trying to look for descriptions that matched Mary Jane. He found a few he was able to rule out, but twice he actually arranged an exhumation in the hopes of matching DNA on file from Mary Jane's relatives with unidentified victims that were already interred. One was from a story Officer Turner had read about a family in Benton County, Indiana. In 1976, they found a box in their cornfield containing the decomposing remains of a woman who had been shot in the back of the head. She was estimated to be between 60 and 65 years old, so getting into the age range of Mary Jane. A year ago, Indiana authorities agreed to exhume that victim and test the DNA. Then a couple months after that, Turner found a case from 1968 in Preble County, Ohio, where a group of kids playing in a yard had found a buried body that had been exposed after a heavy rain. Preble County officials agreed to exhume her, and the city of Eaton even chipped in the cost of that process. Now, in both of those cases, Officer Turner is still waiting to hear the results. But even if neither turns out to be Mary Jane, Officer Turner will be the first to point out that it wasn't a waste of time. Those lost souls will now have their DNA in a database with hope of discovering their identity one day. Listeners, if you live in the area around Plymouth, Shelby, and Willard, please check in with older friends and families who might have a connection to the World War II era. They already found one person who remembered Mary Jane. There might be another. Anyone with any information about Mary Jane Croft Van Gilder is urged to contact Officer Adam Turner at the Shelby, Ohio Police Department. That's 419-347-2242. And now we'd like to welcome two special guests to our program. Shelby Police Officer Adam Turner and Mindy Wilson, the daughter of Mary Jane's daughter, Barbara. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Well, joining us tonight is Mindy Wilson, all the way from South Carolina, and Officer Adam Turner from Shelby, Ohio. Thanks for joining us, Mindy and Adam. How are you doing today? Fine. Thank you for having us. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Well, this is a great story to share because since Mindy had some success in actually finding someone a few years ago who remembered her grandmother, it could happen again. So let's share the word and, and maybe we can find something out there. Mindy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and when you decided to help your Aunt Anna search for your grandma? Actually, um, back to what you were saying, my sister was the one that contacted a gentleman in Ohio. She did it by the newspaper. Her name's Misty. So she started this 25 years ago. She had got sick, was having some issues health issues and so I sort of took over for her. My aunt I guess has been doing it for 70 plus years. So this has been a lifelong pursuit for your family overall. So in 2018 you called the Shelby Police Department to ask for help. Tell well, me I about. I contacted them through Facebook originally and I was speaking to the chief there back and forth about my grandma. He was working on it you know he would get back with me every couple of days and ask me questions and he posted it to the page but then he told me he wanted to give it to his um shining star adam <laughs> saying he was a, a great detective and that that would really work out well if, if he was able to pick it up and go with it so that's how that got started did you expect it to be that easy did you expect that kind of response no not to start with a lot of Every time we usually contacted someone, they had little interest in it, I believe, because it was such an old case. They automatically think, well, she ran away maybe, and it wasn't no big deal to them. But they finally, we got somebody that cared. Now, when you talked to Officer Turner for the first time, what was his reaction? Did you have to twist his arm? Oh, no. He was all in. He was excited about the case, and... He was telling me he wouldn't give up. He would keep on until we found answers. Well, Officer Turner, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Did you grow up wanting to be a cop? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, for the most part, I did. I grew up in Shelby, born and raised. I grew up living uh, above my family's funeral home business, believe it or not. And my parents were licensed funeral directors. I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and I later got my master's degree in uh, forensic science. I worked for Shelby for about four years from 2008 to 2012. I left and I worked uh, for the Springfield Police Department around Dayton, Ohio for four years. And then in 2016, I took a job at the State Medical Board of Ohio as an enforcement investigator. I worked there for two years, and then I returned to Shelby in 2018. So you do have a background in forensics and that kind of detective work. Yeah, I do. 
Is that why the chief gave this to you? You know, I really didn't know anything about this case. Prior to Mindy contacting us, we had never heard the name Mary Jane Croft Van Gilder. When I saw Chief Combs's post on Facebook, that was the first time that I had heard about it. Mindy had contacted Chief Combs in April of 2018, and I had not come back to Shelby until September of 2018. So when I saw that post in September, I walked into his office the next day and said, I'll take it, give it to me, I'll take it. You must like hard challenges. Yeah, I mean, the missing and unidentified have always kind of been a, a passion of mine. You know, even going back to when I was a kid, they were always, it was always cases that fascinated me, just kind of wondering what happened. And so when I, when I first heard about the case, I knew that, you know, I was probably the best person for the job and that I would, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't stop. You know, I'm one of those people that just, I, I, I won't stop uh, no matter how hard it is. And I, I do enjoy the challenge. That's what keeps me going. If it's an easy case, I, I get bored with it. Detective Turner, do you have a favorite theory in this case? You've obviously been able to review everything that's available. And Anna May had collected a lot of information up to this point. Have you come to a theory in this? I mean, there's there's multiple theories. I I, I try not to pick one because if, if I pick one theory, then I will find evidence to support that theory. And I think that's how uh, many investigations are skewed is because uh, law enforcement or the family believes one thing and they find evidence to support that theory. I mean, there are, you know, there are several theories that, you know, Mindy and I have discussed and that I've discussed with, with Anna May. I mean, you know, the number one theory is that Mary Jane left on her own accord to start a life somewhere else. Theory number two is that uh, shortly after her disappearance, she met with foul play. Theory number three is that she, uh, shortly after her disappearance, had an accident and, and died. Um, it is possible that, that Mary Jane lived into adulthood under another name. If she had gotten married after 1945 and and lived into adulthood and died under a different last name we we might not know about it yet so that is also possible and if that's the case namus isn't going to be able to help you because she would have just lived a full life and been buried under another name and the people who knew her in that life she's not a mystery right i mean namus is my you know it's, it's a great tool and you know i've util utilized it to at least have one exhumation done where i was directly involved another exhumation was done in indiana based off of my inquiry into the case and you know we're, we're preparing to do a, a, a another exhumation in the cleveland area Mona Jane Doe that was found in 1969, still currently in the in the legal processes of getting that done. But no, if she had married someone else and had a different last name, Namus isn't going to help me. What's going to help me there are websites like findagrave.com, where cemeteries are uh, categorized and there's pictures of gravestones. That's when that website would be uh, the best help for me. But also publicity, uh, if that was the case, publicity and getting Mary Jane's face out there might spark a memory in somebody 
that says, well, hey, she looks like my grandma's friend or she looks like a neighbor that lived, you know, across the street from my parents. You know, we just don't know. So it's important to get her her face out there. Mindy, I got to ask you, you know, there are three theories there. Do you have a favorite or do you want to share what you hope is happened to your grandma? My main theory was that she died shortly after or around 1945. Not my favorite theory, but she really wasn't hiding. So everybody sort of knew where she was and what she was doing. And being she was in touch with her family and all that. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that she just decided to disappear all of a sudden. So that, yeah, that's pretty much my, my theory. But I'm like Adam. Adam's taught me to look at all theories. So I listen to him a lot on that. <laughs> on that. So we search every kind of way possible we could search. Graves, obituaries. I've joined all these things on Facebook for missing people trying to get her picture out there. I even done some in Canada, Australia, the UK, just in case. And another one, I think it was international missing people, but just in case someone, you know, or in case she left the country. So I have to, I listen to him on that, but my theory is that she died shortly after. In that theory, would she have been a victim of foul play, or do you think it was some kind of accident? Evidently, she was a strong woman. She moved across, you know, states for work by herself in 1944. I mean, that says a lot about somebody's will. So if somebody did something to her, it would have definitely been unexpected. I don't think that she would have went down (laughs) without a fight. Not her. Um, Detective Turner, you're working on your third exhumation. Is it very challenging in this day and age to get the permissions that you need for that? You know, I think of the new technology that is making exhumations maybe more of a tool. And is it easier? From a legal standpoint, it is it is very difficult. What I need and what makes these cases progress quickly is help from the coroner's office. You know, the first exhumation that we did in Preble County, Ohio, the reason that that went off so smoothly is because I spoke with the coroner's investigator there. I told him my case. I told him what I wanted to do, and he never gave me any roadblocks. The coroner's office there never said, okay, you need to do this, this, and this, and we're not going to consider it because it's so old. It was none of that. As soon as I gave him my case, I sent him all my reports and pictures and everything I had, and he sent me everything that he had uh, in return from the 1968 Jane Doe, and we ran with it. And, you know, I can't say enough good things about Dave Lindloff, who's the coroner's investigator in Preble County, and the coroner there, and basically the city of Eaton, uh, all the cemetery workers, the county commissioners, the mayor and the prosecutor, everybody just basically signed off on it, said, we're going to do this. We're going to find out who she is. We're not going to charge this police department because that can be a gigantic hurdle for smaller agencies to overcome because the cost of digging someone up, I mean, it's not cheap. So they donated all their time. And the only cost that we incurred as a police department was to reinter the Jane Doe's remains in a new casket because when we 
exhumed that body. The casket was obviously long degraded, so we paid to have her reinterred in a new casket, and that's something that we gladly did. So if I could get more coroner's investigators, more coroner's offices interested in doing these exhumations, and now now is the time, more than ever before. We're seeing that DNA and science and genetic technology is allowing us uh, the opportunity through forensic genealogy to identify who these people are and to give them a name back. So yes, now is it's it's important that we do this, and I would love to see more law enforcement agencies and coroner's offices doing the same thing. Yeah, as I mentioned in the story segment of this episode, even if the bodies that you're exhuming aren't Mary Jane, you now have DNA evidence of a victim who still has a family out there looking for them. And if it doesn't solve this case, it might solve another. Absolutely. And that's, you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately, I want to know where Mary Jane is and what happened to her. That's, that is my number one mission. That's my responsibility as a policeman and to uh, Mary Jane's family. But if I can help solve other cases, other unidentified remains in other jurisdictions through this investigation, then that is a positive thing. And I, you know, I've talked to Mindy, you know, we, we talk every day and I told her, I mean, we think we both believe that, you know, there, there is a higher power. There's, there's something that is driving this forward. And we think that a lot of good is going to come out of this investigation. Now, of the two exhumations that you did and the third one that you're requesting, what are some of the things that made you think they were candidates for Mary Jane? Was it just the age or do you have access to other information, height, weight, scars, you know, anything like that that is giving you hope? Criteria that the general public can see and then there's uh, another category that only law enforcement can see. So when I first started searching, yeah, I put in height and weight and general eye color, hair color, and then like an estimated year range and geographic location. But the more information that I put in, a, a lot of times the narrower the search. Um, so I kind of have to uh, broaden it a little bit to be able to able to get some hits. So let's say I just entered, you know, she was only 5'5", she only weighed 165 pounds, then I am going to exclude the potentiality that she gained weight, that she lost weight. If I only, you know, set my criteria for Ohio or surrounding states, then I disclude, you know, the possibility that she could have moved across the country. If I base it on age and say, okay, it had to been a Jane Doe found within 20 years, then that excludes the possibility that she could have lived into later life and died a Jane Doe somewhere else. So you kind of have to do a broad search and then narrow it down. So I'll do a broad search and then I'll look at certain specifics about uh, each case. So if I broaden my search, and then I look at a specific case and it says, well, this Jane Doe had, had blonde hair. Mary Jane didn't have blonde hair. She had brown hair. So I'm not going to disclude that completely because it's possible she could have dyed her hair. But that's not going to be my first go-to of who I'm going to exhume. 
So I, I go to um, physical characteristics and circumstances that best and are closely to Mary Jane's. And it sounds like from the victims that you're exhuming, they were later in life. So if any of them turn out to be Mary Jane, that would confirm a theory that she lived for a time after she disappeared and yes. only died later. That's right. But, I, you know, I will say, you know, another another negative is that not all unidentifieds are in NamUs. There are unidentifieds in cemeteries throughout this country that are not in NamUs. And that is a failure on law enforcement. That is a failure on the criminal justice system on as a whole that these people have find, kind of fallen through the cracks. When we exhumed the Preble County Jane Doe, there was a Jane Doe directly next to her that in the, like just, you know, a, a foot or so away was not in NamUs. That was nowhere listed. So, you know, when we were doing that exhumation, I kind of joked, hey, can you can you knock that that wall out a little bit just so we can kind of get into that grave as well? Obviously, we can't do that. But that just goes to show how many unidentifieds there are throughout this country. And they're not in NamUs because there's not a law requiring law enforcement to put them in NamUs, right? That's it's right. a voluntary thing. That's right. Now, certain states, certain states have passed legislation that requires uh, law enforcement and coroner's offices to enter missing people into NamUs, but Ohio is not one of them. And there are only a few that mandate that. Mindy, how much would it mean to you and your families to have a gravesite for your grandma? It means everything to us. We just want to bring her home. We want to know what happened. We don't care the circumstances that she ran off or started a new life. It just will give us peace, peace of mind. My aunt is in her 80s, and she has searched all these years. And, of course, her health's starting to fail her some now. My other aunts and uncles as well. My mom passed away not knowing. So, And I've seen what it did to them, and it even though I never met her, I still love her and want to know what happened. She's a part of me. Now, Detective Turner, any word when these the results from those two exhumations and the, the DNA testing, any word at all when those might come back? I know you've been waiting a year or almost a year in both of those. Well, the, the one exhumation uh, was done in Indiana, and that, that coroner's office there, um, when I had contacted him, he said, yeah, you know, it's a case that I'm familiar with, and it's kind of been a thorn in our side for all these years, but I, I just, we don't have the resources, we don't have the time, and I kind of was like, okay, well, that's the end of that. Well, then about a year later, I read a news article where he had exhumed this Jane Doe, and he had even mentioned in his, this newspaper article that I read that my call was what spurned him on to exhume that Jane Doe. As of right now, DNA testing is still being done on that Jane Doe. The same for the Jane Doe that we exhumed in Preble County. The, the problem is DNA does degrade over time. And the double helix, the, the strand that makes us who we are, over time, pieces and parts of that break off. So there's going to be holes in that DNA strand. So if it's a fragmented section of DNA caused by time, caused by water, um, caused by the elements, 
we're not necessarily going to get a hit right away. Now, the the Eaton Jane Doe, the Preble County Jane Doe, they've tried to get DNA from the nucleus. They've been unsuccessful, but they are now going to try to get DNA from the mitochondria, which is outside of the nucleus. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. If that is unsuccessful, I already have a forensic genealogy team set up and they've agreed to take on the case. We will have to do a little bit of fundraising to get the lab work to get everything paid for. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think we can get the money very quickly. So we have we have a team on board. And, you know, if we exhume this Jane Doe in Cleveland, which is going to happen, we'll do the same thing. If we're unable to get a hit in the national system, which is CODIS, we will do forensic genealogy and we'll find out, we're going to find out who all three are. That would be something. It's just going to be a matter of time. I hope one of them's Mary Jane. Me too. Mindy, what would you like to say to the people living in the Plymouth, Shelby, Willard area? What kind of plea would you like to to make for them to try to help out here? Everybody has older family members. If they're young and you don't, of course, you might not know this person, you've never seen them, but you have aunts and uncles, grandparents, parents, show them the picture. You never know who may remember something. Um, just like the, the time my sister got in touch with the gentleman in Ohio by putting it in the paper, he remembered as a boy her being uh, friends with the family. Share the picture, share it. It's important to us. If it was their family, they may feel differently, but just like Adam said, we have to get our picture out there. Well, to our listeners, if you go to ohiomysteries.com, we will have her picture up on the website and take a look and pull it up on your phone and show it to your older relatives who live in that area. And uh, maybe you can help solve this mystery. Thank you both so much for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing her story and we're going to do our best. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Mitchell Maddock is from Strongsville, where he's a one-man show, producing, writing, and singing all of his own stuff. He said his music transcends genre, but if you have to pigeonhole him, call it pop alternative and electronic with a sprinkle of rock. This summer, he released his newest album, 2020. And in that effort is a song that Mitchell said tells the story of who he is as an artist. He said it's his mission to help mankind become more aware that life isn't just happening to us. We are happening to life. And it's important to see that every thought, action, and even word we speak carries an energy that manifests in the world around us. 
Mitchell believes we are at a pivotal point in mankind's evolution where we will either progress forward and grow or we will perish. So if we are creating our own world, let's create a beautiful one. Well said. Let's have another listen to You Create Your Own World by Mitchell Maddox. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries.
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.